0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
1: Hello, Cardio Nerds family. Thank you for joining us for this remarkable Cardio Nerds case report spanning advanced heart failure and cardiogenic shock. This episode has several key points, but a primary takeaway is that autism spectrum disorder is not a contraindication to cardiac transplantation. As with any case, these decisions do require an expert multidisciplinary team experienced in the nuanced care of such patients. We are ever so thankful for our incredible colleagues and fellows from the Cleveland Clinic, Drs. Gary Pariser, Amrina Lee, and our ambassador from the program, Dr. Tiffany Dong, for bringing us this case and to our multidisciplinary team of experts who elevate the discussion from their unique perspectives. Cardiovascular imager Dr. Dane Meredith, pediatric anesthesiologist Dr. Julie Nesgoda, and advanced heart failure and critical care cardiologist Dr. Randley. And we are honored to have joining us a special guest host, our fellow ambassador from Boston Medical Center, Dr. Alex Pippolis.
2: Remember, everyone, Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. You can claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description and relevant speaker disclosures and amazing show notes are available on the episode show page. If you find the show helpful, please do help others find the show by rating and reviewing this show on your favorite podcast
1: app. And now, a message from my son, Truth. Time to get dirty. Not dirty. Nerdy. It tends to get nerdy.
2: Welcome back, CardioNerds. Nerds. We are in the great city of Cleveland today to discuss an amazing case of cardiology. But this time we brought along one of our favorite people, Dr. Alex Pippolis, who is going to be a guest host today. She is our ambassador from Boston Medical Center, and she is just a wonderful person. And I'll just say she completed her undergrad training at Boston University before leaving for a short stint to Chicago Medical School. Now we're going back out west to Cleveland. So welcome, Alex. Thanks for joining as a guest host today.
3: Thanks so much for having me today, Dan and Ameth, and I am super excited to come to Cleveland, talk some cardiology, and learn from you
1: guys. This is such a special recording because not only, Alex, do we get to spend more time hanging out with you as our guest host but we also get to learn from three remarkable individuals I've had the absolute pleasure of working with and learning from from my home institution here at Cleveland Clinic. And so I'd like to welcome to the Cardiators podcast for the very first time, Dr. Gary Pariser, Umbreen Ali, and Tiffany Dong. Tiffany, many of you will know as our ambassador for the Cleveland Clinic program, but since it's your first time being here for all of you, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves?
0: Hi guys, my name's
1: Gary Pariser. Born and raised in Los
0: Angeles, California. Completed my medical school at Case Western Reserve University just down the street from where I'm working now. And then went to Texas at University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center for my residency training. And then the Sweet Siren Call of Cleveland brought me back for a cardiology fellowship.
4: Hi everyone. I'm Ambreena Lee. I'm one of the fellows at the Cleveland Clinic. I was born and brought up in Karachi, Pakistan, and that's where I did my medical school at the Afghan University. And after that, I came to Cleveland to do my residency here at the Cleveland Clinic, and loved it so much that I decided to fail on formal fellowship. So it's, it's four years here and counting. Hi everyone. My name's Tiffany. I'm originally from Northern California.
5: I went to medical school at George Washington in DC. And then did my residency at uh, Emory and with Ambreen and Gary now as first years uh, at Cleveland Clinic.
3: Awesome. I'm super excited to be back in the Midwest, especially uh, hearing from you guys and talking some cardiology. Uh, Where are we going to hang in Cleveland?
5: Well, we
0: could go hang out on Edgewater Beach. Although I should correct myself. Being from LA, it's a lakefront. It's not really a beach.
1: But it is a beautiful lakefront with a beautiful beach. So I'm game. Let's go. Let's hang out. And while we're there, let's talk some cardiology. You guys have a case? Okay. So what we have
0: is an 18-year-old man who has a background history of autism spectrum disorder, anxiety disorder, and asthma, who is presenting to us as a transfer for outside Institution for the evaluation of dyspnea. So... The story really begins about five months prior to the current presentation and the narrative history of cardiology is really important. So I'm going to start there. So five months ago, he was admitted to an outside institution for a quote unquote bilateral pneumonia, treated with a course of azithromycin, got better and was discharged home. And then I was in pretty good health until about two days prior to his current presentation when he came to the ER with a nagging cough, a low grade fever, difficulty breathing and a poor appetite. And the same institution that treated him five months prior found him to be very tachycardic, tachypnic, and hypotensive. And their initial workup was concerned for pulmonary embolus or maybe pneumonia. So they scanned him for a PE, that was negative, and they gave him a bunch of fluid and antibiotics in the ICU when they discovered, oops. His left ventricular ejection fraction is 25% on transthoracic echocardiography. So then they turned around and started to diurese him, but he didn't really improve his blood pressure or tachycardia, so they sent him over to us. In terms of his med regimen, he's on budesonide, he's on daily flexofedonine, he's on daily montelicast. He doesn't really have an exciting family or social history. He's actually graduated high school pretty recently. And at this point, when he hits the door for us, He is a febrile, but still pretty tachycardic with a heart rate of 115 to 125. He's breathing 18, 20 times a minute, and his blood pressure is still relatively soft, maybe 90s over 40s to 50s, saturating pretty well on two liters. He's got no evidence of acutely decompensated heart failure on exam. So he doesn't have a murmur. He doesn't have any gallops or rubs. He doesn't have any overt evidence of volume overload. His neck veins are relatively flat. He's lying in bed comfortably. His extremities feel warm and well-perfused. And the first set of labs really come back pretty unexciting. So that's quite a bit of history to digest, but I'm pretty confident that my colleague, Dr. Dong is going to be able to at least put together some next steps for us.
5: Yeah, thanks, Gary. That was a great presentation. There are, I think, from the get-go, what's concerning to me is this is his second recent hospitalization in a relatively young gentleman. As you stated, his vital signs so he is tachycardic to the one teens to the and his blood pressure is a bit soft. So you kind of wonder, even though with your exam being more reassuring and your labs are unremarkable, how would you categorize somebody like this? And one thing I find that is helpful is the SCAI stages of shock. So if you're triaging this gentleman, especially with his hypotension and tachycardia, you're looking for other signs of shock. So stage A is somebody who's at risk of shock. So as you pointed out, we suspect a component of heart failure. But on exam, they're relatively euvolemic. And if you do invasive hemodynamics, they'll have a preserved cardiac index with a mixed venous that is greater than 65%. He sounds euvolemic from your exam, but... I think he's more of stage B, which is the beginning of shock, where you have this relative hypotension and he's tachycardic, but maybe without signs of hypoperfusion. You know, on exam, they might be wet and warm. Uh, They might have a slight creatinine bump, but their lactate is normal. And hemodynamically, as we mentioned, their systolic blood pressures are soft, maybe less than 90 or the MAP is less than 60. In a patient who's relatively hypertensive, you also have to remember that their baseline might be higher uh, than what we normally measure. So you're looking for maybe a 30 millimeters of mercury drop from their baseline. And as we mentioned, tachycardia. In terms of invasive hemodynamics for them, like a cardiac index that's still preserved as well as mixed venous. Class C and B and then E are the ones where we really get nervous. So class C, you're starting to see hypoperfusion, and you probably should have some intervention available for them. So on exam, they're cold. They're not really making much urine and they might be altered. On labs, you'll we'll look for a lactate or an AKI and increasing transaminesis. And then hemodynamics, similar to class B. and But this time with when you put a SWAN in, you're going to see a low cardiac index. And then maybe some signs of right ventricular failure, which I think we'll get to. And then D is really refractory to your initial interventions to try and uh, save them away from shock. And E is very unstable in pending CPR, or you might think about crashing them on ECMO. So I guess he it seems like he's in class B. And I think that what's important is we have to understand what his underlying ideology is for his suspected heart
1: failure. That was beautiful. And right now, actually, at this very moment, you are rotating through the CICU, and your approach is incredible. You've identified that this gentleman is sick. He's young, and he's already hypotensive and tachycardic. And I was having a conversation just yesterday with Dr. Justin Burke, who is host of Crib Ciders, and we were talking about shock in the pediatric population, and his pearl to us was was that by the time, you know, they they... Kids, you know, young adults, they tend to have a, a robust physiologic reserve so that by the time that they are hypotensive, this is a very serious and acute situation. So, right off the bat, you've identified this is a young gentleman who's already hypotensive tachycardic. We know his ejection fraction is low. So, even before I start thinking about what is the etiology, I've got to start acting, you know, risk stratify him, put him in a classification and act appropriately. So that is a wonderful impulse. And, you know, in the acute moment, that's perfect. I am wondering, like, what is the etiology and how might we put together the bilateral lung? And I'll put in quotations, pneumonia, maybe we can just say infiltrate, because we don't know exactly what that was. And now this patient with low ejection fraction in uh, tenuous hemodynamics. And I think just broadly speaking, we don't have enough information, but broadly speaking, there are only three possibilities. Either A, this patient is somebody who's had low ejection fraction for a long time that was undiagnosed from any number of ideologies, and now there's some acute hit on top of that. He's presenting acutely decompensated. B, the bilateral lung infiltrate was a process that is directly related to why this patient has low ejection fraction. Could that have been a viral prodrome or some connective tissue disorder that is now resulting in some sort of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy? Or C, this patient is developing the subacute progressive cardiomyopathy and that bilateral infiltrate was actually the presentation of heart failure that went undiagnosed at the time. And now we're seeing the progression of that. So I'm really curious in which box this patient fits in terms of the relationship and the tempo, where the bilateral infiltrate fits in. But you know it sounds like we're on high alert, we're managing him, we're getting more data, both to manage him acutely and to try to figure out what the ideology is. And in addition, on the note of his current classification and trying to figure out where he is right now with regards to perfusion, Gary, do you mind just going back to the labs and giving us a sense of his organ function, lactate, cardiac biomarkers when he hit the door? I know you said they were not very impressive.
0: Yeah. So we, we had a complete blood count. We had a comprehensive metabolic panel. We had an NT probnp We had a set of troponin T's. The comprehensive metabolic panel was completely clean. His creatinine was 0.9. All of the rest of his electrolytes were completely unremarkable. His LFTs were unremarkable. His CBC everything fell within reference ranges. So his NT-pro BMP was about eight or 900 when he arrived, which was really the only laboratory indication that his heart was struggling. The rest of his labs, he had a lactate, it was 1.2 when he initially hit the door. Not a lot of lab evidence that his heart is struggling, although we already
2: know that his LBEF is 25 and we see the tachycardia and hypotension in front of us. Gary, I think that's a beautiful point because- these labs are, quote unquote, reassuring. And the physical exam, like, yes, we mentioned the vital signs, but as you said, the patient is not in any acute distress. He's got even an unlabored respiratory effort. He's able to speak in full sentences. And this just, again, highlights this point that that Amit brought up, that younger patients have a robust way of compensating. And that may be on physical exam, but it also may be in the labs. So these are not patients that you can really judge whether or not they're going to do well based on a chart review, right? Or even somebody's notes. You have to really see these patients and and just, again, that understanding, that appreciation of a low blood pressure, but the tachycardia just tells you so much about this patient. It's a required tachycardia just to get the cardiac output to get by. This patient is basically just getting by and he is perfusing by all sense of the words. And, you know, when I initially heard we bring up Tiffany, when you brought up the shock algorithm, you're like, some people would have seen this patient and not even thought about shock. And that is exactly a point of a shock algorithm or a shock classification so that people think about it and figure out where your patient is in the spectrum. And they may be in an early class of shock, but it doesn't matter. Once you've put them in a shock box and you've now thought about them as a patient that could easily decompensate, you are going to basically deliver better care to this patient. And so that I think that is definitely worth highlighting again. All right. So Gary, I'll turn back to you now that we've discussed all these, quote unquote, as I said, reassuring but not necessarily reassuring lab work and physical exam, what was the rest of the basic workup that you've uh, discovered about this patient?
0: Yeah, so we got a 12-lead EKG, It showed sinus tachycardia with normal voltages, not really very much else exciting on the 12-lead. And uh, we did get a uh, chest film. He does have an enlarged globular appearing heart on the chest film, but he doesn't have any pulmonary infiltrates, no pleural effusions, no pulmonary edema, nothing of that nature
3: so interesting. It seems like this young guy is coming in, tachycardic, hypotensive. We have a report of a possibility of reduced ejection fraction. Did you guys get an echocardiogram when he came into Cleveland Clinic?
0: We sure did. His echo demonstrated biventricular, actually four-chamber enlargement with reduced biventricular systolic function, there weren't any focal wall motion abnormalities. His LVEF was actually estimated at 17% by Simpson's biplane method in our lab. He had 2 plus MR that was attributed to annular dilatation secondary to LV enlargement. He had 2 plus TR, similarly attributed to annular dilatation from the RV enlargement. And he had an IVC that was about 1.8 centimeters in diameter, collapsed more than 50% with respirophasic variation.
3: Wow, so interesting. So I think just to take a step back and reflect on this case, we have, you know, a very young person with really not a ton of pertinent risk factors who's coming in with what seems like an acute to maybe subacute presentation with a, a new a cardiomyopathy And with the data we have so far, we have a lot of interesting pertinent negatives, right? We have an EKG that doesn't demonstrate arrhythmia or evidence of congenital heart disease. The same thing with an echo, no congenital heart disease, no significant valvular abnormalities. We have a chest X-ray, similar that doesn't give us a lot of clinical clues. So I'd be really interested now that we've checked a number of things off of our list, what was your next step uh, in thinking about diagnosis for this patient?
0: Yeah, that's an excellent summary. That's where our thought process was at the same time. This prior illness that had been described, and going back to Amit's point about how do we put together this entire clinical picture, this illness that the patient had described that took place about five months ago, we had some sneaking suspicion that that was an episode of a viral infection, particularly in the era of the COVID pandemic. Unfortunately, there weren't any commercially available tests at the time, but we thought that sounded like it might've been a viral illness and that viral myocarditis was at the top of our differential.
3: How did you guys decide to work it up?
0: Yeah, so the diagnostic test of choice that we reached for was cardiac MRI in this case, just because of the outstanding tissue characterization, the ability to visualize active inflammation in a myocardium versus edema versus scar. You could see whether it's in an ischemic or a non-ischemic distribution. And uh, it is, as far as I'm concerned, the diagnostic test of choice when I'm looking for myocarditis.
5: Hey guys, uh, great news. You just came back from the cardiac
4: MRI. Oh, okay. So let me call Dane, our senior cardiac imaging fellow and see what he thinks about it and what the MRI shows us.
6: Thank you for having me uh, and giving me the opportunity to discuss this case and the role of MRI in the evaluation and management. To start, I think it's really important to emphasize that all good cardiomyopathy evaluations start with a history and physical exam. Uh, And when discussing MRI for cardiomyopathy, it's critical to note that MRI is not a substitute for a good history and physical exam. The selection of diagnostic tests in general uh, and the MRI sequences themselves depend on your differential diagnosis. MRI is often employed as a cardiomyopathy screen, while this is certainly fair, certain cardiomyopathies may be best imaged through different or complementary diagnostic tests. So for example, if you're concerned about TTR amyloidosis, a SPECT pyrophosphate scan is going to be more sensitive and specific for you. Likewise, if you have an individual with whom you're concerned about cardiac sarcoidosis, cardiac PET inflammation imaging can often be even more diagnostic and useful, particularly in the hyper setting where patient stability is often a big question mark for MRI and the lack of Scar imaging can limit MRI sensitivity. And also, as I've alluded to, the MRI sequences themselves, these are the bones with which we're generating the MRI images that we're all used to seeing. Those, the sequences that we pick depend on the clinical question that is being asked. And so, if you ask just for cardiomyopathy screen, you just get sort of general sequences. If you ask very focused specific questions, you may get sequences that you would not have otherwise have gotten. Uh, So, for example, if you're interested in evaluating for things like arrhythmogenic dysplasia, right ventricular dysplasias, we're going to spend a lot of time and, and energy doing various stacks through the right ventricle to understand right ventricular size, function, aneurysms, dyskinesia, and late gadolinium enhancement and fibrovati changes of the right ventricle. Similarly, if you had a, a thalassemia patient getting lots of blood transfusions, we're going to be doing the T2 star sequences, which are a, a, a sequence used to quantify iron overload in the myocardium. This is not part of the standard protocol, at least here, but if, if you were to put that on your differential, that's something that you would get. Likewise, I mean amyloid, while is a common question for MRI. If you specifically ask about amyloid, we're going to spend a lot of time doing high quality T1 mapping, extracellular volumes throughout the entire myocardium, whereas if it's part of the just a general screen. We do look at these things also, but you're not going to get the comprehensive exam that you might otherwise get. Likewise, with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, if you're really uh, concerned about a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we're going to spend a lot of time understanding papillary muscle anatomy, attachments, uh, and left ventricular outflow tract uh, anatomy as well, in addition to scar imaging also. All right, so now let's focus on MRI specifically. And in doing so, I think it's really important to know that MRI is more than just scar. MRI also is is about form and function. We see the entire heart and particularly this is useful for the right ventricle and we can understand things like asymmetric uh, hypertrophy quite well for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Non-compaction cardiomyopathies are particularly well imaged with cardiac MRI in addition to evaluating things like uh, diffuse calcification, thrombus that may complicate various cardiomyopathies. And in terms of talking about scar imaging itself, we generally put scar imaging into two buckets. There is the ischemic scar Patterns and there's the non ischemic scar patterns. And this is still useful even in the scenario of a patient with known normal coronary anatomy. So, for example, we see this several times a year where well, you'll, you'll have a person come in with uh, uh, sub endocardial delayed enhancement across several myocardial segments and a coronary distribution with normal coronary anatomy. This is suggesting that a non atherosclerotic, non plaque rupture process affected a coronary or a coronary distribution caused. Causing uh, pathology. So this would be things like spontaneous coronary artery dissections, which have subsequently healed, or a really severe case of vasospasm or some sort of thromboembolic event that has subsequently recannulized. Within the non-ischemic bucket, these are generally scars that do not follow sub patterns within a coronary distribution, the most common of which is idiopathic cardiomyopathies. And so what's most characteristic of these are focal mid-myocardial patterns of delayed enhancement at the basal to mid-inferior and anterior RV insertion points. Sometimes you'll also see thin stripes affecting the septum Uh, and the scenario being careful not to misinterpret septal perforators as late gallium enhancement. Other potential patterns that we see are things like myocarditis, where one can see patchy mid-myocardial enhancement anywhere throughout the myocardium. It is a little bit more pathognomonic to say focal subepicardial delayed enhancement is more a feature of myocarditis, but certainly that can that is not a sensitive nor specific finding. Cardiac sarcoidosis is similarly a patchy mid myocardial, typically pathognomonically affecting the septum, but truthfully can affect any part of the myocardium. Uh, and here, clinical scenario matters a lot. If you have lymph nodes, heart block, cardiac sarcoids is going to be higher on your differential. If you're coming to the hospital with COVID 19, myocarditis is going to be a little higher on the differential. Cardiac amyloidosis is at least classically characterized as diffuse sub delayed enhancement of a non coronary distribution. That being said, I, I truthfully think that it generally presents just as what we call as a quote inability to null the myocardium, meaning that cardiac amyloidosis is a very diffuse process that generally affects all of the myocardium. And from an MRI physics perspective, the basics of late gadolinium enhancement is that you want gadolinium to be bright and regular heart to be black on your your viability or your late gadolinium images. If there is amyloid all throughout all of the myocardium, then it's very hard to get that differentiation. And we term this as a difficulty of nulling the myocardium, and that's more pathognomonic of amyloidosis. Likewise, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we're looking for patchy, streaky uh, intramyocardial patterns within these hypertrophic segments or things like Fabry's disease where at least it's classically described as mid-myocardial to subepicardial enhancement of the basal to infralateral walls. So now moving on to our patient, what we see in this individual is a very large, severely dysfunctional left ventricle with functional mitral regurgitation most likely. And on the late gadolinium and images, the face sensitive inversion recovery images, I think what's important to note is that what we don't see are our patterns or morphologies suggestive of other forms of cardiomyopathy, such as sarcoidosis, myocarditis, non-compaction, things like this. Uh, what we do see is focal mid myocardial delayed enhancement of the mid inferior RV insertion point taken together with this patient's young age presentation dilation of the left ventricle with severe dysfunction and focal enhancement at the mid inferior RV insertion point. Uh, This would be most characteristic of something like uh, an idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathy. All right, thank you.
3: Great, thanks so interesting. And I'd be curious to see how you guys are putting this together. Because from what I can see, we have uh, a lot of pertinent negatives and a lot of things we've been able to check off our differential. We haven't come to a firm answer yet. And in the back of my mind, I think we're still worried about this hypotension and tachycardia. So what did you guys do next?
0: Absolutely. So our operating diagnosis here was an idiopathic, non ischemic dilated cardiomyopathy. And we were definitely still concerned that this patient was showing us advanced features. So to define his hemodynamics and determine what our best next therapeutic steps were, we took him down to the cath lab for a right heart cath. And we let the bird fly. The swan revealed a right atrial pressure of 5, a right ventricular pressure of 55 over 5, PA pressure of 55 over 28 with a mean of 37, and a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 35. His thorough dilution cardiac index was 2.7, and his assumed thick cardiac index was
4: 2.1. Yeah, interesting fan numbers. So what we see here are pretty high side intracardiac pressures, also right-sided, but more left side intracardiac pressure with a high wedge pressure and low normal cardiac index. So it puts us thinking maybe this is predominant LV failure and he is struggling, but maintaining, just barely maintaining some reasonable cardiac output.
0: That is exactly how we felt about it. And given the borderline cardiac aid disease, we elected to leave the PA catheter and tailor his therapy to the PA catheter numbers in the intensive care unit. But at the same time, it really struck me how uncomfortable the patient became with the catheter in place. It really provoked a lot of his anxiety. Being in the ICU with all of the alarms and bells and everything ringing around the clock, he was miserable in there. It was a really overstimulating atmosphere for him. So we ended up feeling like he diuresed pretty well with ID loop diuretics. And we ended up feeling like he'd probably get at least calmer care out on the telemetry floor. But... Even on the telemetry floor, without the PA catheter in place, anytime we tried to introduce him to even a tiny dose of he became very hypotensive. He didn't tolerate it in the slightest. He floundered outside of the ICU. His appetite was poor. He started to lose weight, and then he developed this spontaneously waxing and waning lactic acidosis.
3: So, looking at his right heart cath numbers, I think one uh, really interesting point is looking at his RA to wedge ratio. And actually we just recorded a super exciting episode with Dr. Mark Drosner from UT Southwestern who terms this group an RV compensated group where, and I think we actually saw this with our patient here, we can be fooled by our physical exam where I assume with an RA of five, his JVP was low. And that sort of leads us maybe to underestimate how bad his LV was and how high his left-sided filling pressures were. So I think it's interesting when we think about some of these patients who don't fall into our typical sort of one to two ratio of the uh, RA to wedge group.
2: That's a really good point, Alex. And as we'll learn in this episode with Dr. Drasner, that the other group, there was the RV compensated group, but then there's the, the right and left equalizers, which means that the left ventricle is sick and also the right ventricle is sick. So their wedge and right atrial pressures tend to track together. But here, this RV compensated phenotype is one where the left ventricle is struggling, is just struggling. You got a wedge that's elevated to 35. But for some reason, the patient is able to compensate and the right ventricle is able to relax and squeeze as it can to accommodate that back pressure. And so they have a better prognosis, as you would imagine. And this fits our patient's profile really well clinically, right? Like We see there's a lot of He's clearly coming in with heart failure. He clearly has reduced ejection fraction, but he's compensated. And now we understand why his right ventricle is, he's an RV compensated phenotype. So really great point, Alex. I'm glad you brought that up.
1: Yeah. And when is that important? That's the the link between when we're trying to assess LV filling pressures, right? The patient's level of fluid overload or fluid status based on a JVP exam. And so this is the point when Dr. Drasner was saying like, look, you could be, you could have a JVP that is seemingly normal but with a very elevated wedge pressure. And so that's earlier we were talking about what was there a need for this right heart cath because on exam, the patient was euvolemic, right? The JVP was not elevated and the blood work did not show evidence of end organ perfusion. But this was a young gentleman who was hypotensive and tachycardic. And there was something about the way he looked that made you uncomfortable. And he said, no, we need to define the hemodynamics because something doesn't smell right. And now with the right heart cath, we're seeing that hey, something wasn't right. You got the right heart cath in, you diaries the patient, and now we're in a position where he's just not responding to medical therapy. Gary, how did you proceed next? Because it sounds like you were stuck in that moment.
0: We really were stuck. I think the, the, it's an excellent discussion of interpreting the right heart cath numbers. The one other thing is that the guy's wedge is 35 and his lungs are pretty clear on chest x ray and on exam. Now, if one of us in this recording suddenly developed a wedge pressure of 35, almost invariably we would flash and require immediate therapy. But I think his wedge being 35 and him breathing on room air or two meters of oxygen actually speaks to the chronicity of his heart failure that his lymphatic system and his lungs has adjusted and has become robust enough. To pull pulmonary edema out of him at the same rate that it's forming, even with a wedge pressure of 35. So I think when we're thinking about how long this has been happening, the fact that he's not in respiratory distress, despite that high wedge pressure, speaks to the chronicity of this syndrome. But the crux of the situation here is that this patient has a lot of advanced features of heart failure, and he needs advanced therapies. Every time we mentioned that he needed another right heart cath, he would essentially have a panic attack and say absolutely not. He was really debilitated by his anxiety in the setting and we were handcuffed. Now, when you think about how anxious a PA catheter made him, there's no way he's gonna withstand an that with a drive line and the batteries and all of that. So we started thinking about whether or not you needed a heart transplant. But of course, when you need a heart transplant, you're gonna need serial endomyocardial biopsies. You're gonna to need to have more right-heart cats. And he was so, so resistant to right-heart cats because of his anxiety. We actually started to question his candidacy.
4: Uh, right, Gary. And this is a point of considerable challenge in this case, because this patient is not just another young 18-year-old patient. This patient has very severe and must stress anxiety with anything in any sort of physical contact, So getting any procedure done right now or later down the road was a constant struggle for him to overcome. And then we also know from prior experience with heart transplant and the pediatric population that this is extremely sort of anxiety-provoking for them and, and for the parents, especially. It is the diagnosis of end-stage heart failure is taken similar to diagnosis of cancer, and there's concern for not having a good outcome or rejection. Of the organ. But then there's a second part to it, and that's the continual treatment, frequent follow up, daily medications, biopsies, catheterizations, and so on and so forth. And this is not only the child or the adolescent, but the parents involved as well, and in some cases, the siblings. So there's a significant psychosocial sort of risk, and up to one third of these patients in different studies develop significant psychological problems. And this sort of persists beyond the two year full transplant period, which is what one of the surveys looked at. And then the other part of it is that the quality of life in pediatric heart transplant recipients, sort of there's a consistently low quality of life that's reported, uh, even though the symptomatic disease improves. and that's to keep in mind that these are young kids or like our patient just finished high school and looking forward and then taking transplant into it and everything that comes with a transplant. It's very occasionally a a challenge for us to, to think through and then speak to the family. And while we were doing this, the, the striking thing that sort of came up was that there's hardly any published literature on follow organ transplants, particularly heart transplants in the autism pediatric population or Asperger's syndrome. So it's of really making it a very unique situation for all. Now, with all of this sort of together, Gary, how did we proceed?
0: Thank you for the incredible insight I'm bringing. I think, unfortunately, I have to start ringing alarm bells about him. Because on one sunny morning, on a routine lab check, all of a sudden this transaminase is bumped into the 800 to 900 range. And when we checked the lactate that morning, it was at six, which is higher than it had ever been before. Now, it was pretty clear to us that if we were going to offer life-sustaining therapy to this patient, we had to have a PA line in place to define hemodynamics and consider either onotropic or mechanical support. So at this point, we enlisted the help of the pediatric anesthesiology team, led by Dr. Julie Nisgoda, who really was instrumental in developing a rapport with our patient and facilitating with her team this right heart cath. So nobody can tell this story quite like she can. So here she is.
7: Hi, everyone. Thank you for including me in this important discussion. As a short introduction, I am a congenital cardiac anesthesiologist at the Cleveland Clinic, and I am boarded in pediatrics, general anesthesia, and pediatric anesthesia. Safely anesthetizing children and adults with special needs has been a focus of mine throughout my 36 years in practice. The timeliness of this podcast is impactful because autism spectrum disorder, abbreviated ASD, and not to be confused with atrial septal defect, is currently the fastest growing neurodevelopmental disorder in the world. In North America, a staggering one in 68 children are diagnosed. This will undoubtedly affect all healthcare subspecialties in the future. These cases are challenging, but really truly hold my passion, so I was happy to get involved. Gary, You might not remember our first conversation, but I do. I was impressed with your heartfelt compassion for this young man and your willingness to explore alternative options for him. As was previously mentioned, I joined the team when the patient was refusing a right heart cath, which could have impeded his candidacy for a transplant. Gary asked if I could meet with the family and let him know when my availability was to do the anesthesia for this procedure. I replied, This wasn't about my availability. It was a matter of whether I could engage the patient and his parents to proceed with the study. Parents are key components in these cases as they know all the nuances of their children, especially what agitates and calms them. One of the psychological theories of attempting to explain the altered social functioning of people with ASD is the lack of theory of mind. People with autism have difficulty in seeing another person's perspective, difficulty in understanding their intentions, and lack of knowledge of how their behaviors affect others. They are often uncomfortable with physical touch or closeness. The top three triggers identified in the literature causing decompensation of ASD patients in the hospital are multiple people in the room, loud noises and voices, and lastly, bright lights. In addition to these known factors, our patient experienced a traumatic right heart cath, where he described being alone under the drapes, hearing everything in the room, being given 13 little bee stings of numbing medicine in his neck that was painful to him, all the while separated from his parents, who were his constant support system. Establishing trust, and rapport with this patient was going to be challenging because his anticipatory anxiety was basically disabling him. He was withdrawn, depressed, had stopped eating, and was confining himself to his hospital bed. Before I even met this patient, I began developing a relationship with him by thoroughly reviewing his medical and personal story on the chart in order to try to connect with him quickly. During our first meeting, he had little verbal or nonverbal communication. He was playing video games and had noise reducing headset in place. I tried to distance myself across the room so as to not invade his personal space, gathering information from his parents. IQs in autistic patients can be low, normal, or high. Our patient had graduated high school just one month prior. And was headed to Marshall College on scholarship in the fall. His parents were particularly proud of this because they had to advocate for their son to be allowed a mainstream education through the legal system. The school board actually thanked him and his parents at graduation for pushing them because their son taught them so much about how to care and educate autistic children. His parents told me of his love for computers, video games, and figuring out how things worked. I developed my relationship with him further by calmly and quietly talking with him about his awesome accomplishments, his likes and dislikes, while validating with empathy how difficult and confusing everything was right now. I kept our conversations to a fifth or sixth grade comprehension level. I came in on weekend evenings when staffing was low and interruptions were less in order for him to focus on topics. We reached a point where I could approach him about his willingness to undergo a second right heart cath if, and only if, he and his parents could collaborate with the plan. We discussed how he was in charge of his body, and he alone could make choices to impact his ability to get better. We engaged child life, occupational, physical, art, and music therapists as well as his parents, to constantly review the plan. I would truncate discussions, being mindful to not overload him, and would have him verbally teach back the plan to me to assess his comprehension. He was extremely anxious and fearful of needles and pain in his neck from his previous experience. I discussed topical LMX lidocaine cream, detailing how it works with him. To get on his level, I told him it was like a spoonful of sour cream placed on your skin and covered with a clear plastic bandage. He replied, I don't like sour cream. Okay, do you like whipping cream, I asked. Yes, he replied, and once he had a visual that was acceptable, we were able to move forward. I put the LMX on my hand and let him touch it before I covered it. He asked questions, and when he was comfortable, I placed the cream on his neck and hand, covered it, and returned two hours later, so that he could feel the sensation of his skin being numb. This was to prepare him for the procedure by mocking up what he would experience, hoping to avoid decompensation during the actual procedure. He was still cautious and unsure. Just the numbing of his skin was so foreign to him. I kept reinforcing that this right heart cath would be different if He would only trust and work with the team that was caring for him. I was amazed at his retention of information and detailed teach-back with each visit. He became more engaged, and he was more comfortable when the procedure time approached. We allowed his father to be present. He chose what he would listen to on his headsets, and I assured him we would be with him every step of the way. His Heart failure limited the amount of IV medications we could give to him. At times, trust and hand-holding have gotten patients through cases. My colleague jokingly coined this mommy anesthesia. Our patient was constantly reminded if he could get through the right heart cath, get a new heart transplant, he would feel better and have more energy, and going forward, he would be able to, to be sedated for right heart caths because he would have a stronger heart at this point. This was a driving factor for him, to keep going. I knew we had to be meticulous with the execution of the plan. Of the many special needs patients I have cared for, he was one of the most difficult to gain his trust because of the complete derailment of his life as he knew it, and a multitude of triggers he couldn't cope with. It is impossible to connect with anyone when their amygdala is hijacked, let alone a patient with autism and anxiety disorder. We ultimately were successful getting him through the procedure, and the patient was very proud of himself. It was very worth all of the time and energy invested to get him through this.
0: So a huge thanks to doctor Louise Godot for the the pivotal care that she provided. The repeat numbers are a right atrial pressure of 26, an RV pressure of 58 over 26, a PA pressure of 57 over 43, is where we recorded here, a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 38, and an assumed fit cardiac index of 1.5. And if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure that our brain was the fellow quarterback in the ICU when this PA catheter was placed?
4: So yeah, these numbers are uh, remarkably different now. And what's really different here is that our RA pressure, which was five, is 26 now, and our RV pressure is C8 over 26. While the wedge pressure is about the same, with 38, but our index is taken and nose diving is about 1.5 now. So he's clearly doing much worse. But I think the thing that, jumps out to me is that his RV, which we thought was co- well compensated it was predominantly high LV pressures, and given in now and he's going into RV failure. So just to briefly talk about how we use PAPI or pulmonary artery pulsatility index as a surrogate for this. So PAPI is ba- was basically shown to predict requirement of RV support in patients receiving LVAD support and we extrapolate that to many circumstances, a surrogate for how well the RV is doing or will potentially do, should we give any sort of LV venting support. And the usual cutoff is around two different people take it between one eight to 2.2. Two. Anything less than that has a hard propensity to worsen. And we see this fairly commonly in patients who can decompensate fairly quickly once we reach this stage. So his PAPI at this time with the 2nd heart catheterization comes out to about point five. Just very concerning. Now, this happened, and then a few hours into the call, uh, we're reaching that area, the point in time when things started to go really south, and we're into the weekend. So, he has continued hypotension, systolic blood pressures in the 80s, or norepinephrine. He's very tachycardic, persistently 120s, and higher. Lactate continues to rise, and his liver enzymes are worsening. So at this point, we know that we have to do something. The whole discussion about whether advanced therapies are appropriate for him was at that stage at this point where we decided that we would offer whatever we can and see what, whatever we can given his anxiety. But then suddenly all of this started happening, and there wasn't that much time. So given the acuity of his uh, sort of precipitous decline, we decided to give him some support. But the same challenge came up. He, at this time, because he was sicker, was also so much more anxious that he would not even allow um, me or anyone else to go near his bed anymore. We decided to give him conscious sedation and give him some sort of mechanical support. And the first one would be an intraortical balloon pump because it was readily available. And also we could do it fairly quickly. And the challenge was to get anesthesia back in. And this was the middle of the weekend and we had to wait for people to come in. But when they did and they attempted conscious sedation, it was not enough for him this time. And that it was becoming very hard to maintain his hemodynamics. With that so we went ahead and then intubated him. Now, when that happened to my horror, I saw equalization of systemic and pulmonary artery pressure of 65. And that's not something that's incredibly surprising, given how bad his RV was. These patients who are in bad RV failure are so preload dependent that even a slight change uh, will cause profound RV failure. And the loss of systemic tone and systemic pressure with sedation that rapidly decreases RV preload and total cardiac output leads to worsening RV ischemia and then worsening RV failure. And it's a cycle of badness that sort of perpetuates itself. And these patients can code quickly and require massive pressure support to maintain high systemic pressures. When this happened with him. We knew we had to act quickly, so we cranked up his norepinephrine nor- epinephrine to get some systemic blood pressure up. And within the next 10 seconds, we got the intra balloon pump in quickly. So once we got the balloon pump in, things seemed to temporize for a little bit. But then going back to how poorly his RV was doing at this time, his pressure requirement was still very high, and his lactate was continuing to rise despite high doses, the more and the balloon pump At this point, we looped in our bigger multidisciplinary team, um, which includes cardiothelastic surgery and intervention cardiology as to what the next step would be. And the decision was made to escalate the VA-ECMO, which we did at the same time, so within the hour. And so do not lose any more time.
1: Yeah, Ambre, you're giving such a detailed picture of what is going on in these pivotal moments in this gentleman's life. You know, he is decompensating faster than maybe we would have predicted. His RV is now involved. You guys are doing everything possible. Putting an introitic balloon pump just to get whatever support you could. Escalating to VA ECMO. And of course, this is a multidisciplinary team decision, activating advanced mechanical circulatory support that you do with a great degree of awareness about what the next step will be. What is the step after VA ECMO? Where is he going to go after that? And I'm hearing about this from your perspective and from the medical team's perspective. I just want to briefly take a moment to, as a father, just recognize that this gentleman is 18 years old and he is crashing and burning, crashing onto VA ECMO in our unit what was the conversation with the parents around this time? What was their affect? How did you counsel them through these dire moments?
4: Yeah, thank you for, for bringing this up because it was a very important, integral part to this. And so initially when I started speaking with them, when things started to fall down, we're focused on just the immediate support. But during this, while we were preparing, we did talk to them in our with our hot failure team with the same on uh, sort of outlooks so that he's an eighteen-year-old, very smart, brilliant guy who deserves the best chance possible, and his parents just wanted him to have the best chance possible, whatever it takes and whatever the cost might be. It may it be them having to hold his hands for many years in terms of treatment and support, but they wanted to do it, and we we were all very invested, so we made a decision. And it was not a quick decision. We've been talking about this for for a few days, so at least we have that. But so we made a decision to list him as soon as we can get him on mechanical circulatory support and temporize him. So the time being as so the VA ECMO and the balloon pump was done as a bridge to transplant. And the same evening, we were able to list him as status one. So I I think that during this time when things were snowballing. His parents and their composure. And their understanding of what was going on was integral to us being able to provide the best care for him. And also for them to understand what it entails going forward. But at the same time, you can understand he's a young guy. His parents want everything done for him. We want everything done for him. And so it was a fairly quick decision. We were all on the same side. We all wanted the same thing for the station. There were no two opinions about it.
2: Ambreen, that was beautiful. And this is, I could really see this being a tremendously challenging situation, but it sounds like you were able to help support the family and get them through this crazy situation where they brought their son in, again, looking in no acute distress. And for all intents and purposes, this was another hospitalization for maybe another pneumonia that they were wondering, maybe we just need another antibiotic. And you walk them through this Whole process, and you yourselves again recognize that this patient was a, a high risk patient. But again, there were so many things pointing in the way of a chronic issue, right? And you didn't have this crazy myocarditis on MRI. You didn't have a process that was yelling at you in the face that this heart is going down. But yet you recognize that this patient was tenuous and that he was compensating and could fall off the cliff. And so When that actually happened, you were prepared and you had the team ready. So obviously your backs are up against the wall. You've offered him maximal mechanical circulatory support at this time. So what were your next steps? How did you save this patient's life?
4: Thank you so much, Dan, for that summary. So yeah, so then he was on ECMO. Before 10 days were out, we were able to get him a heart transplant and he did really well afterwards and eventually got discharged and was doing great. The family was so happy. He was so happy and we were so happy. It was such a fantastic and satisfying outcome.
5: Yeah, and this was a major win, I think, both for uh, us as a team and especially for, obviously, for the patient and his parents. This was not necessarily the straightforward advanced heart failure to transplant given his autism disorder, but I think that this is also something that we have to keep in mind, not only treating the hemodynamics that we're seeing in front of us, but also being mindful of the patient. And as Gary touched on, we had great collaboration with pediatric anesthesia to help us get these hemodynamics. And then also our team was able to get him onto advanced therapies rather quickly and ultimately provide him the the best care
2: possible. Tiffany, thanks for summarizing those key and salient points. And Broadly speaking, guys, it was such a pleasure to visit you in Cleveland. Beachfront, Lakefront, I don't care. You guys are just such a great group of people. And the care that you have delivered and, and the lessons that you have taught us are truly priceless. So Gary, Ambreen, Tiffany, thank you. Thank you. And I'm it <laughs> you can be part of this. Aww. Thank, you for, <laughs> thank you for having us. And a special thank you for Alex uh, flying over to Cleveland with us, taking time out of your day to have guest host this amazing episode. So we... the Cardiners Nation, thanks you all.
3: Thanks so much for the return to the Midwestern hospitality. And I certainly learned a ton from this case. So really appreciate it.
0: And so for the ECPR, I'd like to turn things over to Dr. Ray Lee. Dr. Lee is a heart failure intensivist at the Cleveland Clinic, and he really is the de facto glue that holds that ICU together. It's an incredible presence that he carries. He is an incredibly helpful attending in terms of procedures and in terms of patient management, and, and really the ICU is uh, it wouldn't be the same without him. So, Dr. Lee,
8: thank you for the kind introduction and for the opportunity to contribute to this Nerds case report. This topic on cardiogenic shock, acute heart failure. Temporary mechanical circulatory support in advanced therapies really highlights the ongoing intersection and multidisciplinary collaboration between advanced heart failure transplant cardiology and cardiac critical care, two areas which I am deeply passionate about. I'll spend a few minutes discussing the case from a cardiogenic shock standpoint. As many of our listeners know, morbidity and mortality from cardiogenic shock remains a significant problem in 2021. Mortality rates have not significantly changed over the last few decades hovering around 30-40% to of cases, while cardiogenic shock from acute myocardial infarction remains the highest prevalence, acute decompensated heart failure leading to cardiogenic shock is increasing in number, as seen in the aforementioned case. This also includes cases of acute myocarditis, stress-induced cardiomyopathy, or drug-induced cardiomyopathy. We have several means at our disposal to improve outcomes in cardiogenic shock in the current era, all of which were highlighted in this case. This includes, but is not limited to, phenotyping and defining stages of shock, early and often invasive hemodynamic monitoring with PA catheter guidance, rapid recognition and multidisciplinary involvement, for example, with a shock team, the timely, efficient, and appropriate deployment of temporary mechanical circulatory support, and finally, the standardized care in the cardiac intensive care unit, which are pillars for improving shock outcomes. Meanwhile, ongoing randomized control trial and registry data looking at optimal device utilization in certain shock states will further our understanding of this deleterious condition. Characterizing and categorizing this patient's shock state was essential. He straddled the line between stage B or beginning shock with a resting heart rate greater than 100, blood pressure around 90 over 60, rails, and elevated jugular venous pulsations on the floor In classic stage C shock with low cardiac index and increasing markers of malperfusion, such as a rise in creatinine or a rise in liver function tests. As mentioned before, he probably would have declared himself earlier in the course if he were older and did not have as much physiologic reserve. We also debated whether or not to initiate advanced therapies in the initial stages of this patient's presentation, given how young he was. However, he soon declared himself that his condition would not be survivable without going down this pathway. We know from retrospective data that those in classic stage C shock progressing to stage D shock or stage E shock do worse. I also recommend reviewing not only the sky shock classifications, but also the American Heart Association 2017 Contemporary Management of Cardiogenic Shock Scientific Statement, which helps extrapolate classic definitions of heart failure to cardiogenic shock. For example, cold and wet shock with classic low cardiac index, high systemic vascular resistance, and high pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, warm and wet shock, which is more of a vasodilatory or mixed shock state, or cold and dry shock with low index, high SVR, and not necessarily a high wedge. We also emphasize the importance of guidance with a PA catheter to define hemodynamics and tailor therapy, whether that be parenteral medications, inotropes or vasodilators, or escalation to temporary mechanical circulatory support. Despite data in the late 1990s or early 2000s looking at quote-unquote routine use of pia catheters and heart failure, the sickest cohort, for example cardiogenic shock patients, were rarely or not at all included. Recently, expert consensus documents, white papers, and even retrospective data from groups such as the Cardiogenic Shock Working Group have highlighted the crucial importance of complete hemodynamic assessment in PA catheter data paired with identifying the shock stages in terms of improving outcomes. There was an associated survival benefit in those who had complete hemodynamic assessment, and complete PA catheter data can help confirm the severity of shock and also guide escalation and management. In the absence of randomized control trials, The importance of early recognition and multidisciplinary discussion cannot be emphasized enough. Pre- and post-implementation data at multiple centers of a shock team consisting of cardiothoracic surgery, cardiac critical care, heart failure, and interventional cardiology has shown association with improvements in mortality. The benefit of the team in the absence of new data is to leverage expert opinion on optimal strategy, timing, efficient deployment, and implementation of temporary and even durable mechanical support the so-called bridge. During these talks, decisions on univentricular support, LV or RV, or biventricular support, plus or minus oxygenation, can all be determined. In this case, the fellows recognized pretty soon that biventricular support was necessary and deployed veno-arterial ECMO in a timely manner. Knowing how to rescue patients really requires a knowledge of the risks and benefits and technical aspects of using these temporary device platforms. At the end of the day, standardized cardiac intensive care cannot be emphasized enough either to help save our patients in cardiogenic shock. This includes optimal pain and delirium management, protective ventilator strategies, providing nutrition, prevention of viatrogenic complications such as infections or venous thromboembolism, and early mobility. The fellows involved in this case were deeply integral in moving the care of this very ill patient forward and providing him life-sustaining therapies. This case also highlights the true multidisciplinary nature of what we do, especially as it relates to advocacy and considerations of care for an individual with a developmental disability. We discussed multiple times how we could bridge this patient to a destination, either durable LVAD or heart transplant. Respecting his developmental disability and associated severe anxiety with respect to procedures, indwelling lines, etc., we determined that an LVAD would not be an appropriate strategy to prolong his life, and we adjudicated his case before our Committee for Orthotopic Heart Transplantation, for which he was approved. The input from both adult and pediatric teams was essential. It was also imperative that the team availed itself of the services in the hospital, such as child life services, art therapy, music therapy, pediatric anesthesia, and both adult and pediatric heart failure and surgical teams, to truly understand how best to provide life-saving care. On the adult side, we are less adept at caring for pediatric patients and knowing the nuances surrounding procedures, sedation, and anesthesia for this ill population. Pediatric anesthesiologists, as well as the pediatric team, have innumerable tricks up their sleeve to comfort patients, from additional topical anesthetics, to gentle deep sedation, to providing music and art therapy under a sterile drape. The patient's parents were deeply appreciative of all of this support, given they could not be at bedside during these procedures. Thankfully, the patient is doing well almost a year post-transplant. He receives his routine biopsies under the care of the pediatric team with Pediatric Anesthesia Services and follows up with me and the adult transplant team in clinic. He's playing basketball, he's hanging out with his friends, and he's enjoying the life of an otherwise healthy 18-year-old all of which we owe to the wonderful care provided to him at the Cleveland Clinic.
7: On a final note, our congenital cardiac anesthesia team has done all of this patient's post-transplant right heart caths. The first few were labor-intensive, however, by maintaining a routine plan from check-in to discharge with familiar caregivers, he now sails through without parental presence. Our relationship has flourished throughout the hospital stay and beyond. In the end, we are now discussing the why to everything he endured. We talked about college, what he will do, possibly entering a field to help others by inventing something to help heart failure patients or becoming a spokesperson or role model to help the special needs patients and parents by telling his story. My final goal in my career is to start a special interest group in the Society for Pediatric Anesthesia. With goals of creating standardization of care for this population, sharing best practices, and promoting research and publications. I am grateful for the collaborative efforts of the healthcare teams at the Cleveland Clinic who worked to deliver the highest level of treatment to obtain an outstanding outcome for this patient.